<clears throat> Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 5 to 14. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 5 to 14, that's our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage is Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. Again, our scripture reading, Hebrews 10, 5 to 14, our sermon passage, passage, Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. That's always a tricky one to find. It's right before Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, so it's the penultimate book of the Old Testament. I just love saying the word penultimate, so, um, but it's right there in front of Malachi. I always put a marker in there just so I don't have to fumble up here in front of you all and be embarrassed. Um, Hebrews 10, 5 to 14. This is the very Word of God. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now turning to Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inspired, infallible word. God's word, which is for you, written down for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a blessing it is to read about the Lord Jesus Christ who became the once for all time sacrifice for the sins of your people. What a blessing it is to know that we do not have to go to a priest who every single day offers sacrifices on our behalf. Lord, we are thankful for the Old Testament sacrificial system because it's so clearly pointed to the coming Messiah who would make that once for all time sacrifice, who would make atonement for us. And we're grateful for this brief passage we'll be considering today. 
and for what it teaches about Joshua, or better known as Jesus, our great high priest. So please, O Lord, teach us from your word as it is now proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of a review. It maybe has been a while since you've read through the book of Zechariah. It may be that you've read through it more recently. If you're reading through the Bible in a year and you're going according to a Bible reading plan. But you probably know that Zechariah was a prophet in Israel. And he was a prophet in Israel after the Jews had returned from exile in Persia in 538. So the Jews began to trickle back from Persia to Jerusalem. Now, it's a historical fact that most Jews remained behind in Persia. Not, not all Jews went to, back to Jerusalem. And as is the case today, more Jews live outside of Israel than within it. But those Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from exile were now actively involved in rebuilding the temple. And so the time uh, of this, uh, when this vision came to Zechariah, it was 519 BC and the temple would be finished re- being rebuilt in four years. So by 515 BC, the temple that they were working on at this point in Israel's history, it would be rebuilt. It had been destroyed in the invasion, and now it was being rebuilt. And so, for obvious reasons, the people who had returned, they had gone back for the explicit, the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. They're focused on their efforts at rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. But God wanted to focus their attention on the spiritual reality to which the physical temple pointed. That's always been the case from the time of the tabernacle in Israel's wilderness wanderings to the time of the first temple that was built by Solomon to the time of this second temple which was being rebuilt and which would be further rebuilt by Herod the Great. The temple was always intended to point to the spiritual reality And this vision that we just read and that we'll be examining, it's a vision which shows God's desire for his people to see beyond the physical. You can see if you look in chapter 2, verse 5 of Zechariah, that instead of physical walls, God told his people that he would be a wall of fire around this new Jerusalem. They were also very concerned about their Protection, And so we read in other parts of God's word that, that those who are rebuilding the walls, they had weapons, they had swords strapped to their sides. They were on guard. And so not only were they masons and construction workers, they were there as members of the army. But the Lord is telling his people, I will be your wall of protection. I'll be the wall of fire around you. Your enemies are not going to hinder you. Now, the book of Zechariah is most often known for Zechariah's eight night visions. Now, these aren't, has nothing to do with night vision goggles, for those of you who might be thinking that way, but because he had them in the night. They were dreams, visions that came to Zechariah in the form of dreams. And those night visions began in chapter 1, and they extend through chapter 6, and the remainder of Zechariah doesn't have the night visions any longer. In Zechariah's third vision in chapter 2, the new spiritual city of Jerusalem will be the temple. That's what the vision is showing. God says that he will dwell in the midst of his people there. And you can draw a line from Zechariah chapter uh, chapter 2 to Revelation 21-22. 
And in our passage this morning, Zechariah receives another night vision, the fourth of the eight night visions. And in this vision, after hearing about the the spiritual temple that God is going to bring in chapter 2, in this vision he sees Joshua the high priest. If there's a temple, there must be a priest. And since the Adam of Uh, the fall of Adam and all of mankind after him into sin, there is and can be no dwelling of God in the midst of his people without a mediator. And that takes us to this thought, this proposition that I want you to consider and keep before you as we work our way through the sermon today. Jesus, our great high priest, the mediator between God and man, exchanged his righteousness For our filthy sins. Jesus, our great high priest, the mediator between God and man, exchanged his righteousness for our sins. The sermon has three points. The first point is the accuser, the second, the accused, and the third, the acquittal. Very simple, very easy. The accused. I'm sorry, the accuser, the accused, the acquittal. I just undid what I just said. Not so simple, not so easy. The accuser, the accused, the acquitted. Let's look at the accuser first. As was mentioned, the the passage prior to this pictured New Jerusalem as a place where God would dwell with His people. In effect, it would become a new kind of temple. And in this vision before us, Today, the first person that Zechariah sees is Joshua, the high priest. Now, the presence of the high priest makes us think of a temple, but the vision instead takes us to a courtroom. Verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. The place where God sits enthroned in the heavens is both a temple and a a courtroom, and so this vision accurately represents reality. But the Joshua of this vision is not the Joshua of the Canaanite conquest. That conquest had taken place somewhere around a thousand years prior to uh, when Zechariah was having this vision. The Joshua in Zechariah's vision is a high priest. There was a man named Joshua who was high priest at the time of Zechariah's vision. He was the grandson of the final high priest of the temple before its destruction in 586 B.C. And Ezra chapter 2 says that Joshua had returned in 538 with the other exiles. And Ezra 3 says that he helped rebuild the altar of the temple on which burnt offerings were placed. But at this point, in 519 B.C., the high priest Joshua was a priest in need of a temple. He was a mediator who had no ability to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the Joshua of the vision is also in need of a good defense lawyer because Satan has come, as was his role, he has come to bring accusations against Joshua before the Lord. Thankfully for Joshua, the angel of the Lord is his defense counsel. The angel of the Lord is his advocate in this courtroom. Now Joshua stands in the position of one who is accused. He stands before uh, the bench. He stands before the judge. And to Joshua's right, which was the position for the accuser, stands Satan. 
Psalm 109 verses 6 and 7 say, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. Now this Psalm 109, it's a psalm written by David. It's what's called an imprecatory psalm in which David calls upon the Lord to act against David's adversaries. David maintains his innocence with regard to these men, and so he asks the Lord to bring accusers against them, those who would bring accusations against David. But as we see from verse 3, the picture we get of Joshua is that he, unlike David in David's psalm, Joshua is guilty. Joshua stands before the Lord in polluted, filthy garments, we find out in verse 3. He does not stand as one who is innocent before his judge. But before the reader can even get to this description of Joshua in our text this morning, indeed before Satan even has a chance to bring a charge against Joshua, he's there, he's in the position of the accuser, he's ready to charge Joshua with sin. It's an open and closed case. Joshua's standing there in filthy garments which signify his sinfulness. But before he has a chance to do so, the Lord intervenes in verse 2 and says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, meaning Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? Now the Lord doesn't mention Joshua's name in verse 2. Instead he mentions Jerusalem. And God reminds the accuser, which is what the name Satan means, that he has chosen Jerusalem. And then he describes Joshua as a brand or a burning stick that has been plucked from the fire. Now what does that mean? Well, Joshua, along with all the others who have returned uh, to Jerusalem from Persia to rebuild the temple, he has been plucked from the fiery furnace that was Persia. He's been delivered back to the promised land. And so in other words, the Lord tells Satan that he is not about to allow Joshua or the people Joshua represents to have accusations brought against them in his courtroom. The Lord is asserting his dominion over his courtroom. And no accuser can attack his people. As judge, he refuses to hear it. He will not tolerate it. He will not let malignant words come against his people. And he will deal properly with the sin of his people, represented by the filthy garments Joshua is wearing. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon, the accused. We've already referenced verse 3, but let's look at it with a little more detail now. It says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, most of the time in our culture, when a person has to go to court, he dresses up. There may be some instances when a person cannot afford to, but most even hardened criminals, they dress nicely. For example, I'm going to tell myself a little bit here. Perhaps I've told this story, I'm now old enough, I'm 50, I can, I can forget things that I said in the past without really worrying about it. But back when I was in the Marine Corps, stationed at Camp Lejeune, this was probably the last year of my time in the Marine Corps, And I had a couple of friends who I was taking back to my home to visit with my family on the farm in in Statesville. And we were in the car, and we were just talking and listening to music and bopping along. And the next thing I know, I'm being pulled over by a North Carolina State Trooper. And I don't remember my speed, and I can't say with all honesty that ordinarily in every other case I adhered very closely to the speed limit. Uh, But in that case, I think I was going fast enough over the speed limit that I had to make a court appearance 
later on. And so at the appointed time later on, uh, probably a month or two later, I had to show up in whatever county it was. But the retired colonel that I was working for at the time on base, he said, wear your service alphas, meaning not the, not the dress blues, but the dress greens, the, 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 the suit that looks like a business suit, except it's olive drab made out of green gabardine. And he said, show up with that. Show up with your ribbons on there. And, you know, maybe you'll make a good impression on the judge. And thankfully, I don't think because I was wearing my Marine uniform, because they probably caught Marines all the time speeding through that zone, <laughs> But thankfully, the judge was willing just to lower the speed below whatever the, the limit was, maybe below 10 miles an hour, and it didn't really affect things very much. Our, our, our intuition, we know we've got to go and we've got to look good. Even if we're guilty, we don't want to show that we're guilty. And I was guilty. I, I deserved to have whatever the maximum penalty was, probably points on my insurance and a fine. But I wanted to look pure on the outside. I wanted to look like a, you know, kind of a hero. I wanted to show I'm serving my country. Don't come down too hard on me, please. But in this vision, Joshua is standing in the courtroom of God, the supreme judge of the universe in filthy garments. He is wearing his heart, in a sense, on his clothing, as his clothing. And his garments are not dirty from working. These aren't dirt stains. They're not grease stains. He didn't drop a plate of food in his lap. The word translated filthy in the original is more than merely soiled with dirt. It refers to excrement. Now, kids, if you don't know what excrement is, I want you to ask your parents after the service. Parents, do your duty. A similar word refers to human excrement in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 13, where the Israelites are instructed to dig a latrine outside the camp and to cover up all their excrement. And it's also used in metaphors depicting sin in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, where we read, when the, Lord shall have, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And so the implication of all of this is that the filth, the filth on the garments came from within rather than from without. Joshua was not dirty because he'd been wallowing around in the mud, mud like a pig. He was dirty because of what came from the inside to the outside. And so Joshua stands before the Lord in garments soiled by human filth, garments soiled from the inside out, garments soiled with his sin. And so Satan didn't need to say anything. He could have simply stood off to the side to Joshua's right, pointed at Joshua's garments and said, case closed. There's nothing you can do. Like everyone else, like you and like me, Joshua is a sinner. The high priest Joshua, at that time, he was a sinner. He was conceived in sin, which simply means that when Adam fell, he, like everyone else except for Jesus, sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression, his first sin. Adam was his and our federal head. He represented us in the garden. And so when he sinned, we went right along there with him. And on top of that, he's also the high priest. And so he stands before God in Zechariah's vision as a representative not just of himself, but of all Israel in her sinfulness. 
Israel and all of those sins which caused God to drive them out of the promised land and into exile. Now Joshua's in a true predicament. He's in a pickle. He doesn't even need an accuser. His filthy garments are a testimony against him. He stands condemned before God even before God pronounces judgment upon him. And Joshua's predicament is our predicament. Each of us prior to knowing Christ was clothed in garments made filthy by our own sinfulness. Each of us in the absence of knowing Christ would have stood before God in his courtroom and been found guilty of all charges against us. And we would have had no reason to expect leniency in our sentencing, much less full forgiveness. And that is because, brothers and sisters, the smallest sin that you have ever committed, the smallest sin that I have ever committed, it is high treason against the holy God. It is an act of utter rebellion against the high king of the universe. So even that smallest of sins is deserving of death. This vision that God gave to Zechariah was a vision about Joshua the high priest. And it was also a vision about all of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, including Zechariah himself. All of the Jews who were represented in Jerusalem by Joshua the high priest. But this is also a vision about us. It was a prophetic vision which foretold each of us standing before the Lord, wearing our sins like a garment, with our accuser on our right hand. But like Joshua, we have an advocate Before a charge can be brought against us, the Lord has rebuked our accuser. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And so, you do not need to live in fear of judgment if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes us to point three, the acquittal. Verse 4 says, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your, your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. As the high priest, Joshua was required to come into the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies with spotless vestments. That reflected his status as one who had been set apart as priest. The priest only went into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, one time of year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Our Jewish neighbors just celebrated that last Thursday. And there, inside the Holy of Holies, in clothing that was pure white, the high priest would offer sacrifices for himself, he would offer sacrifices for his household, he would offer sacrifices for all of the people of Israel. But here in this vision, Joshua stands before the Lord in his heavenly temple. The Holy of Holies on earth, in the tabernacle, in the temple, that was a mere representation of the Holy of Holies in heaven. And that's where Joshua in this vision is standing. And his clothing is not white and pure. His clothing is filthy. And there is not a thing that he can do about it. But as the Lord indicated in verse 2, he did not pluck Joshua or his people out of the fire only to condemn them now. And so the angel of the Lord tells those who are standing around Joshua to remove his filthy garments from him. And the second half of verse 4 makes clear that the garments represented sin. It says there, behold, I have taken 
your iniquity away. His sin-covered garments are taken away. And the Lord promises to him him there in verse 4 that he will clothe Joshua with pure, clean vestments. Now, as it is with all of the visions in Zechariah, as it is with many of the prophecies in the Bible, if not all of them, there's a near-term fulfillment as well as a more profound, more complete fulfillment at a later time. The near-term fulfillment certainly ties into the completion of the temple which took place four years after this vision was given to Zechariah in 515 B.C. When that temple, when it was completed in Jerusalem, the high priest Joshua was then able to go into the Holy of Holies to carry out his special mediatorial duties. The foremost of which was to go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. And so this vision of the prophet Zechariah, it serves to remind the returnees to Jerusalem that Joshua is the rightful high priest who is authorized to enter the most holy place on their behalf. And four years later, that prophecy is fulfilled when Joshua the high priest goes into the physical temple there on earth. Upon completion of the temple in 515 B.C., Joshua the high priest, along with the other priests, can restart the sacrificial system, offering animal sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of God's people. But think about that sacrificial system. Implied within the system is its own deficiency. And because God designed it, the deficiencies we must conclude are built into the Old Old Testament sacrificial system. These are features, not bugs. In the temple system in earthbound Jerusalem, sacrifices had to be offered continually for sins. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that was the big one. But the sacrifices were offered every single day on the altar. You see, one animal sacrifice isn't enough. Even once a year, it's not enough. A sacrifice of an animal can't truly atone for the sins of human beings. And so the deficiencies in the system are, of course, the result of sin, which continually is present in uh, God's people and so must continually be atoned for in the sacrificial system. The system shows its own limitations because it has to be repeated day after day and year after year. But this vision has a judgment day gravity to it. This vision has a finality to it when we hear the Lord rebuke Satan and order Joshua's garments to be removed and replaced with spotless ones. And so this vision points to more than simply a return to the sacrificial system and temple worship from the time of Zechariah's vision. It points to more than that which the people resumed after their return from exile in Persia. It points to a fundamental change that will take place at some point in the future from 515 B.C. The true fulfillment of this prophetic vision would take place when another high priest named Joshua, better known by the Greek version of his name, would appear. And this high priest is, of course, Jesus, whose name means, just like Joshua, Yahweh saves. Jesus, unlike Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, Jesus is the forever high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we're told in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20. Since the fall of Adam, there is no possibility that a human being can come before God without a mediator, someone to stand between the two parties. And Christ, 
will always be our mediator. Jesus did what no human priest could ever do. Being God and man in one person, Jesus offered himself up as the perfect once for all sacrifice uh, for the sins of his people. One time and only one time. He didn't offer up an animal, he offered up himself. He put on our filthy garments, stained by our own sins, and they were counted as his. He took ownership of them. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ's mediatorial work as our sacrifice is over. It's finished. But he continues on as our mediator. Why? Because he's, he's still our intercessor. He still sits between the Father and us. He no longer makes sacrifices for us. That's why we don't regard the Lord's Supper as a re-sacrifice in the way that we practice it. We don't believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper turn into the literal body and literal blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice was once for all time. In the temple in heaven, there is no daily, no annual sacrifice for our sins. It is finished. Christ Jesus has sat down. In becoming the sacrifice to atone for his people, he was clothed in the filthy, vile garments of your and my sin. All of those things which pour out from our hearts and have indelibly stained us. Jesus Christ was clothed in those. He got our sins. And in exchange, if you believe in Him, what do you get? Just like Joshua in this vision, you receive spotless, pure, white garments. That's the great exchange. The sin that condemns you in God's court of law has been taken away. You are washed white as snow, as Psalm 51 puts it. You gave Jesus your filthy rags, which is all that you have to give to Him. And He, in exchange, gave you His perfect righteousness. Jesus was declared to be a sinner. You are declared to be righteous in the sight of God Most High because of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. And so just like Joshua in this vision, you stand acquitted before your divine judge. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God's words to Joshua in verse 4 are His words to you. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we admit that we are sinners. Each and every day we sin. We were born in sin, conceived in sin. But Lord, we are thankful that all of our sins, past, present, future, even our sinful estate, it was counted as Christ Jesus' sinful estate and His sins. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you in justifying us have counted 
Christ's righteousness as our very own. We are so thankful for that spotless, clean garment that you have wrapped around us. We are thankful that we have been robed in the righteousness of Christ. We are thankful, O Father, that when you look down upon us, you look down upon us not as our judge. You look upon us as our loving Father who sees that we have been acquitted, declared to be not guilty. And we are grateful. Lord, help us to reflect upon what you have done to ensure our salvation, to secure our salvation. And teach us to be grateful. Give us joy of our salvation, we pray. Help us to delight in you and all that you have done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our great High Priest. Amen.